Greg Lamp is the CTO of YHAT, a data science technology and operations company. Greg, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. At a software company, what is the typical relationship between data scientists and software engineers? Well, with the companies that we're typically working with, we find that uh, data scientists are on sort of one team where it's much more, uh, as you might imagine, looking at data, answering business problems or questions um, that management or the company might have uh, using that data. And then on a separate team, you have the software engineering group where that's where your really application development is done, whether that's a website or a mobile app or back-end ETL work, that kind of stuff. What are the points of an application that both the data scientists and the engineers are touching? Well, what we found, and, and this is one of the reasons why I started YHAT a couple years ago, is that where both engineers and data scientists are working on the same piece of their application is usually something like a real-time prediction or a recommendation. So an example might be on Amazon.com, they have the, well, if you uh, liked or looked at these this pair of blue jeans, you might also like this pair of tennis shoes. And so that's an example of a component of a web application that has a data science component to it as well. And so you have to have both engineering and data science uh, teams working together in order for that to be a successful feature. Is there is there a typical workflow between the data scientists and the software engineers? Like, are the data scientists communicating the spec that they need from the software engineers or vice versa? Yeah, so the way that I found is it, it typically goes is that a data science team will come up with a new algorithm or new recommendation engine, something that they want to try out on a company's website. And once that analytical work is done, usually what happens is data scientists just kind of throws that work over the wall to the engineering team and just sort of says, hey, here's this, you know, whatever it is, random forest model that's predicting what pair of pants this user might like, can you put this on the website? And that's just kind of the end of it. Yeah, we did a, a week of shows about DevOps, and one of the recurring themes was there There was this idea of a wall of confusion between dev and ops, and the DevOps movement is about eliminating that barrier of confusion. Do you feel that there's a similar barrier of confusion between data science and engineering teams? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I've noticed, and one of the you know one of the core problems that we solve at Yhead is that you have teams of data scientists who they're writing code, they're doing analytical work, use things like R or scientific Python, Pandas, MATLAB, tools like that. You have your engineering team who are using things like Ruby on Rails or Node.js or you know pick your favorite web technology. And even though you have these two groups that are both very technical, you know, very capable, they're both writing code, but it's really hard to take that analytical code and get it to work with sort of your production code or your the code that's actually being used to build 
your company's applications. And so there's just this huge disconnect between the two parties. So assuming that these companies are not using Y Hat, what are the ways that that data scientists and software engineers translate code between these two types of platforms? Yeah, so this was uh, this was actually one of my first jobs. Was I was the guy who had to figure out how to do this. And the most common way is that there'll be one person who takes these, call it a, a model written in R, and they will go line by line through that data scientist's work and translate by hand that code into the production stack for a given company. So at my previous job, I was taking R code and going line by line and translating all of that into Java. And it's really tedious, super error prone, and uh, you know what I found is that I spent a lot of time just going through and finding you know, tiny bugs or uh, just validating that what I had was the same as what the data science team was was trying to implement. Yeah, so I actually had that same job at a at a ad tech company where I had to translate some data science stuff from Python to Java, and it was just a nightmare. I, I saw a uh, a YouTube video where you were talking about how you had to translate like I guess it was a hundred and twenty page PDF of code. <laughs> From one language to another? Yeah, that was, uh, that and, was and that rough. sounded really familiar to me. Yeah, that was that was rough. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, at times it's data science can be fairly academic to the point where you're really just taking a paper or a um, a spec for something and going through and and trying to make it useful in the real world, and it's it's very time consuming, or it can be. So we've outlined some of these problems that the data science and engineering teams have when trying to work together. What does YHAT do? Sure. So YHAT helps companies take their data science work or analysis and embed it into other applications uh, that that company is using. So great example, one of our customers is uh, a bank in Europe and for each one of their uh, branches or their online presences in different countries, they have different credit models that they need to run on those uh, individual websites. And so they use YHAT to take, for instance, the credit model that runs in the United Kingdom, and they take that R code, uh, send it to YHAT, and then they can use the output of that and embed it into their site so that when you have people come into that site, they're making predictions in real time um, using their latest models. So would you say that YHAT sort of turns data scientists into like restful endpoints? Uh, yeah, that's that's definitely one way to, to put it. Uh, the rest of it sort of turns sort of your a, data scientists into a into a service oriented architecture. Yeah, it what Wyatt makes it really easy to take something that a data scientist has been prototyping and working on, and immediately deploy it and turn it into an API that's instantly consumable by anyone else at the company. 
Interesting. So how to, to, to delve deeper into that, how does Y-hat reduce code translation? Sure. So the, the biggest thing that we do is that we actually run uh, the exact code that data scientists are uh, developing in a production environment. And so what that means is we're running the same scientific libraries, we're running the same helper functions, the same uh, data artifacts that they have on their laptop. We have a, a process that automatically tra translates that into a production-grade web app that exposes an API, which software engineers at that data scientist company can use to um, access the models and the data scientists work. What does the engineer need to know about, you know, so like if a data scientist writes some query and exposes it as an API endpoint, what does the, the engineering side need to know about the black box that is doing that, that work, that, uh, you know, running that query and updating the result of that endpoint? Really, all the engineer needs to know is the, the data that is fed into the model or the, the data that that model needs in order to execute a prediction. So that could be something like uh, a user ID for a given customer. That could be uh, data points that have been collected at different phases of an a e-commerce checkout site. Or that could be calls to a third-party data source like a credit bureau in the case of a financial services company. Okay. What what's going on behind the scenes? Like what technologies did you use to uh, construct this system of creating restful endpoints? Did you abstract it or did you build it on top of uh, you know any any sort of like Node.js libraries or or uh, Rails libraries or anything? Uh yeah, so the biggest technology we sort of selected early on docker as a technology that we could leverage as a way to isolate and run these models as apis and what docker allows us to do is provide a safe environment for one of these apis to execute where it's independent of other models that might be running at the same time. So instead of just having one API endpoint per server, we can have, you know, 10 or 20 or, you know, we've had as many as 60 of 60 uh, data scientists models running all from within the same uh, hardware configuration. So we've done some shows that talk about Docker, um, but just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, could you talk about why Docker is so important and, I guess, what Docker does? Sure. So the Docker is really, I think it's a pretty simple concept. Docker takes the idea of a, a VM or a virtual machine and allows you to split a, a VM into sort of little separate mini so you can think of it as like taking a server and splitting it up into n number of little mini servers that are running 
and each little mini server has their own operating system, has their own isolated environment, and allows you to do some pretty nifty things like control the data input and output from each one of these containers, isolate different packages that you want to run or different um, files that need to exist in one container but not the other. And so it really makes, um, for us, it makes running individual APIs on a single server uh, a lot easier. So let's get back to talking about Y Hats Technologies. One of your products is Science Cluster. What is Science Cluster? Uh, Science Cluster is a, a workbench for data scientists to, to leverage cloud computing resources like Amazon, uh, for instance, without having to go through some of the IT headaches of you know spinning up an AWS server, installing the packages they want, managing uh, different sort of scripts or threads of execution that they have going on at the same time, and lets them do it you know, easily without getting the systems administrators or, or IT department involved. Is Science Cluster an operating system? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't call it an operating system. It, it's, um, it's more of just a, a web application that kind of controls the controls different jobs, scripts, IDEs, things that are running on a server that are specific to doing data science. How does a user deploy Science Cluster? Sure, so all of our software, is, we ship our software via uh, Linux packages. So we have uh, deb files for Ubuntu, we have RPMs for Red Hat and CentOS, so installing it is really just a single command, either you know, apt-get install Science Cluster and uh, it, the script kind of bootstraps itself and gets you up and running. So does, I guess I'm still not clear, does a user deploy Science Cluster to his own machine or is it hosted on the cloud or are, is there, are there no requirements? You can do whatever you want. There's really no, no requirements. So that was actually one of the things that we found kind of early uh, in starting Y Hat was that our, our customer base was very uh, sensitive about their data. So, I mean, you can imagine privacy, uh, not being able to have, not being able to send their data to a cloud or a hosted service. And so all of our software is designed to run either on-premise or in our customers' Amazon account or other uh, VPC. So this is kind of a, an aside, but, I, you know, I've heard these kinds of concerns about security when using a managed cloud service, but haven't we gotten, like, as a as an engineering society, haven't we gotten beyond the point where we, like, collectively acknowledge that it's more secure to have your stuff in a cloud-hosted <laughs> environment than, like, your own environment? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would say... I mean, I personally definitely have, uh, but for us, it's more of, of our, our customers and sure. our, you know, our, our customers kind of, they run the gamut in, in size and industry, but a lot of them are larger 
publicly traded companies and they really just haven't bought into the uh, AWS, you know, uh, cloud hosted services quite yet. Is the kind of thing that makes you realize how much of a bubble we live in sometimes. Yeah, it's very, it's like that sort of the hacker news uh, <laughs> bubble. Yeah, I mean, my, my thought on it is like Amazon knows a lot more about security than I do. So I tend to uh, let, them, let them handle as much of it as possible. Yeah. Um, so do you need a DevOps person to set this up? Or is this something like an engineer can just sit down and say, I know I need science cluster. I can go to the, like, figure this out very easily. Yeah, it's super super easy to set up. We typically, it really just depends upon the company that we're working with. But you know, probably fifty percent of the time, we're working directly with the data scientist for an installation. Fifty percent of the time, we'll work with the company's IT department. And then this again kind of goes back to the whole security, cloud hosted versus on premise thing. Uh, but installing our software is, like I said, it's about one or two commands, and then uh, get you up and running in usually under 30 minutes. So it's pretty simple. And how customizable is it? So this is something that kind of goes back to Docker. One of the reasons why we selected as, as one of the technologies we wanted to use is Docker lets you mix and match what libraries or dependencies are installed from within the runtime environment and so what this means for our customers is that we can, we can include uh, very specific libraries. We can include proprietary Python or R packages in our software's distribution that makes it really easy for them to kind of work the way that they want to work. They're not confined to a specific set of libraries. It's really anything that they want to install uh, can be included in our in our product distribution. So to talk more about the Science Cluster product itself, it's been popular with data science professors who are teaching classes. Why is Science Cluster useful for teaching a class of data science students? Uh, yeah, well, the uh, I guess the science cluster just provides a way that you can have one professor who might have, I think the biggest class that we work with is about 180 students. So you can have one sort of main hub for all of the students' data science work to get done. And the professor can easily administrate and provide course material, uh, kind of like we said earlier, install specific libraries or packages that students might need for a particular lecture or class. And then it also prevents students from having to set up their own data science environment, which we found that can be really time consuming and difficult for someone to do on their own. And then add to the fact that you've got a student who's probably new to scientific computing to begin with, and that just sort of magnifies the pain point. Sure. So why has another application called ScienceOps? What is ScienceOps? Yeah, so ScienceOps is our, our flagship product. Uh, 
science ops takes data scientists analytical routines and allows them to instantly deploy them as restful APIs. And those APIs can be accessed uh, by software engineers or other developers at their company with just a couple lines of code. And so ScienceOps lets a data scientist take analytical scripts that have been written in Python or R and turn them into APIs. Like you said, it's the flagship product. So I know we touched on this a bit earlier, but to reiterate, what is going on under the hood to enable those endpoints? Sure. So each one of our customers' models runs within its own isolated environment. And that using environment, Docker. using Docker, and that environment is set up using our software in such a way that it's going to include all of the dependencies, any sort of libraries that are required. Uh, that's something in scientific computing that tends to be somewhat difficult is somewhat uh, data scientists experimenting with a new package and they want to include it in a model, uh, getting that into a production ready state, somewhat challenging. So taking that model, setting it up in a dedicated environment, mimicking their the library that, or the, excuse me, mimicking the environment that they used to create that model and then API-ifying or creating that API endpoint so that that model can be accessed uh, by the outside world. What's the user experience or the onboarding experience like for a data scientist who is familiar with, uh, you know, he's familiar with Python or R, but not necessarily with the Y hat workflow? Yeah, so our philosophy is that we, we really don't think your deployment solution should impact your day-to-day workflow. And so ScienceOps is designed to mimic a data scientist's existing workflow. So we have client libraries built out for Python and R. And in order to deploy code that you've written to ScienceOps, you just import uh, the YHAT library, define one or two functions for explaining how your code will run, and then it's just one line YHAT deploy. And that takes care of the rest in terms of creating the API and the environment and exposing it to the rest of your company. So ScienceOps allows a data science team to set up predictive models against API endpoints, and those models can be accessed by employees or customers or however the the company wants to configure it. Can you give an example use case? The best example is one of our first customers. They're a a bank in in Europe called Ferratum, and they use YHAT or ScienceOps to take their credit models and run them on their public-facing website and inside of their mobile apps. So the YHAT blog has a bunch of interesting posts about data science, and one of the recent posts was about how the blog itself is becoming really large and hard to navigate, and you decided to implement a search algorithm for the blog, and you realized that you could use science ops for this. How did you use ScienceOps to build a blog search engine? I was thinking about how we could, like you said, better organize our blog. And I had a really short Python script that I had written that allowed, uh, allowed you to take 
just a sort of arbitrary input, search through the content of our blog, and then display the top 10 most relevant results. And so I took that Python script and I deployed it onto our instance of science ops that we run internally. And from there, I just rigged it up to our blog with a little bit of JavaScript and created a little input box where you could type in a search query and that would hit the science ops API that I deployed and then retrieve results for the search engine. Are there any really weird cases, uh, use cases for science ops that you've seen your users uh, implement that you would have never thought of? Yeah, so originally uh, we found that most of our customers were in financial services, sort of a uh, where my background was, and it has a lot of very natural use cases for science ops in terms of credit, lending, fraud, that sort of thing. But what we found after we started, you know, had the company around for a year or two is that there's a lot of interesting use cases, whether it's, you know, e-commerce doing things like recommendation engines, uh, We've had text analytics companies, natural language processing, sort of everything. The weirdest thing, I think, that we've seen, one company who's using science apps for taking like input data from forms, so looking at the speed at which their users are typing or whether they're using the tab key to fill out different forms and using that data to predict their future behavior and to predict and segment uh, those customers. So that, w- that was a pretty weird one that uh, I never thought would be something that science ops was used for. Fascinating. So data science is the focus of this week on Software Engineering Daily, but the next theme that we're going to cover is Y Combinator companies. And Y Hat is a Y Combinator company. So for those who don't know, Y Combinator is a startup accelerator that invests in the early stages of tech companies. And we wanted to do a week covering it. And full disclosure, we want to inform the listeners that Software Engineering Daily is actually applying to Y Combinator ourselves. So with that being said, what did you first have when you applied to Y Combinator? So we actually applied uh, two times. The first time we applied was about, it must have been about three years ago, and we had a, a really poorly working prototype and just kind of hopes and dreams. And um, let's see, I remember we, were, we went out to California to interview, and the interview didn't go very well, and as a result, we, uh, we were not accepted, but... Uh, it did at least get us kind of working on the idea and got myself and my co-founder, Austin Ogilvy, to quit our day jobs and dedicate ourselves full-time to Y-Hat. Fascinating. So, uh, as I understand, when you actually got accepted to Y Combinator, you had a, a pretty significantly working product. Um, so when you actually got accepted, uh, how robust was your product? So we were accepted to the winter 15 class, and at that point, we had a, a functioning product. We had a few customers. 
the product had been in market for about a year, which makes a in the enterprise software world makes a, a really big difference. And then we had actually already raised a, a seed round of funding. So we had employees, the company was already kind of off and going and, uh, Y Combinator was a, a great chance for us to, you know, kind of go out to the West Coast and meet with some investors in California, and then going through the program obviously was a, uh, a quite an experience as well. Were you hesitant to join Y Combinator when you already had a developed company, a developed product? No, this was something that we we really wanted to do, and we had. We actually had a few of our own angel investors had participated in Y Combinator and were very encouraging and, and very pro in, in terms of having us go out there for the for YC. Did Y Combinator help you solve any engineering challenges or was it mostly like product and fundraising challenges? Uh, not, not really on the engineering side, at least in terms of the technical details. Uh, they're extremely helpful on the fundraising and, and sort of navigating uh, venture and angel investing. In terms of product, they were a great, uh, found that they were a great motivator in terms of, you know, every week you go in, you meet with the partners and you need to have some sort of improvement, whether it's improving your, for us, our blog and conversion funnel or increasing the number of pilots that we had going on, or in the best case, the number of closed deals. What was the most counterintuitive advice that you received at Y Combinator? Huh, that's, that's a good one. Um, I think some of the most counterintuitive advice was that Y Combinator really emphasizes sales and engaging and trying to reach as many of your customers as possible. So, for example, we were blanketing uh, fintech companies with emails, trying to find those companies that were at that right moment that they where they needed one of our products. And you sort of you're on Hacker News or you read all these blogs. You think that Y Combinator has all these like magical product and, and engineering recommendations and the biggest thing that I got from them was just pushing sales and how important uh, how important sales is to your company. Interesting. So some of the tribal knowledge from Y Combinator, some of the tactics have become publicly available over the years through Hacker News or through Paul Graham's essays. And so with that in mind, um, I mean, what what was it that you got out of the experience that you would not have been able to get just by reading? Yeah, my favorite part was just meeting the other founders and the other companies that were going through Y Combinator with us. Our batch was was pretty big. We had there were over a hundred companies in the winter fifteen batch, and just being able to meet so many people who were so dedicated and so passionate about such specific problems or specific domains, uh, I found to be made for some very interesting conversations and was a lot of fun. Were there any Y Combinator companies who adopted the Y Hat product? No. I, uh, unfortunately, I don't think any of them could 
really uh, afford us. We're much more geared towards working with larger companies, you know, mm. on the order of 60 or 150 employees as opposed to the uh, two and three person operations in Y Combinator. What is the cost structure for Y Hat? Sure. So we have uh, enterprise software licensing. Uh, we license our software on a per server basis. And uh, to be honest, the pricing depends a lot upon the customer. So that ah, things see. like number of users, number of uh, servers that they're going to need, that sort of thing. But all it's, it's all done on an annual agreement and we provide support and updates and obviously if they have feature requests or recommendations we're also more than happy to include that as well what is the moonshot goal for y-hat so the 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 mega success for y-hat would be if we were sort of the the data science company for kind of like enterprise software company for how data science gets done. So if you think about the sort of past five years, there have been sort of hype phases, you call them, in data. So there was Tableau that conquered the the BI market. And then you had Cloudera who conquered the big data. How do we process all the data that we're ingesting before we have to ingest more data? And I think the next phase is the prescriptive or the predictive analytics market. And so that's what we're going after. That's the, okay, we have all this data. We've made all these nice, pretty charts. How do we actually take that data and use it to forecast what's going to happen as opposed to either processing the data we already have or reporting on historical data? Yeah, I like the quote from Peter Thiel where he says, big data is often dumb data. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. So I, I read a quote from you that said, data science is the fastest growing undergraduate major. How does a data science education differ from a computer science education? There's a lot of commonalities, but the biggest thing for, I would think, a, a data scientist and would be focus a little bit more on the math side, so uh, st- some more statistics, in-depth linear algebra courses, and then uh, something that certain engineering programs do is uh, like case studies or capstone projects where it's on the student to formulate a, you know, not just solving a problem, but also figuring out what the right problem to solve is in the first place. And so that might involve some data collection that might involve cleaning and scrubbing some data. And then finally synthesizing all of that into a solution or an answer that can be presented to some sort of uh, stakeholder. Is the role of data scientists becoming more distinct and different than a software engineer or are data scientists and engineers becoming more similar or how, how do you see that gradient changing? I think they're, I think they're getting, uh, I think they're getting more dissimilar. I've, there's been kind of a rise in the, the idea of a data engineer, which yeah. I, historically, 
kind of fell under data science, but kind of fell under software engineering. And I think that's kind of helped set some dividing lines in terms of who's who. Um, but I, I see data scientists as more of the people who are answering business questions, analyzing data, and then presenting results. I see engineering more as the sort of the creators or the implementers of whether it's a website or an app or you know kind of whatever the company is is building. So if you were learning data science from scratch, how would you go about it? I would go about it the way that I did it myself, which is just pick a problem and try and solve it. So for me, my first job, I was trying to classify web pages and it was a way for me to get out of a lot of my kind of day-to-day work. And so it became a, a side project that I was working on and eventually it led me to Pandas and led me to Scikit-Learn and some of these other great libraries for, for data science and analytics and one thing led to another and you know I, I, just, I guess I just kind of got the, the bug. Do you have any preference for if a new data scientist should start with Python or R? Uh, no, I think it's really just a matter of preference. I would encourage uh, I would encourage people to kind of look to their peers. So if you happen to work at a company that has a lot of R users, R would probably be a good choice for you just because your support network is going to be a lot better. Uh, but in terms of whether R or Python are better, I think they're, they both have their merits. They both have their weaknesses. They're pretty similar anyways, so you might as well just go with the one that fits you the best. What do you think about the Julia language? I've been hearing a lot about it for a while, and it's, it's an interesting project, but it just seems like it's not ready for prime time yet. Uh, I think it's still going to be another year or two before it's a it's like actually feasible for regular users hobbyist users to to be using it at work what are the deficits from what i've found i mean it, it's it's still just evolving it's still new there's a lot of uh there's a lot of tooling that still needs to be built out around it and the community is just not as big as the r or python community yet is it easier to teach data science to an engineer or engineering to a data scientist? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I don't know if there's a answer one way or the other. I, I think it just depends upon the individual and whether or not they are interested in some of the more you know, analytical and statistical concepts of, of data science. So I want to go through a simple data science problem. There's a talk that you gave about how to build a beer recommender system using Y-Hat, and I'd like to talk through an abbreviated version of this talk because, uh, and I'll put it in the show notes, the the presentation that you gave, but it's a really good, solid example for, for somebody who has no idea what data science is or like, you know, what kind of problems you can solve with data science. So this problem, to start with, we, we have a collection of several beers, and we have user ratings for those beers. So each user gives a simple one to five star rating of a beer, and we want to be able to measure how similar each beer is to other beers. So then if a user likes one beer, 
then we can recommend similar beers. And as you said at the beginning of the show, there's plenty of applications to this, such as Amazon. So what are the steps to take to build this recommendation system? Yeah, so the first thing and arguably the hardest thing is that you need a, a data set to work with. And so the the blog post or the, the talk that you're referencing uses a, an open source data set from the website uh, beeradvocate.com. And they've been around for a pretty long time. And so they had a collection of about a million reviews that uh, that we could work with. The next step is to take that data set and come up with a way to condense it down so that it's a little bit easier to manage and a little bit easier to understand. So in this example, what we decided to do was look at how individual users were rating uh, certain beers and then compare those users to other users who rated the same beer. So for example, if I really like Sierra Nevada, I also like uh, maybe Coors Light. We could look at other users who also liked Coors Light and use that as a way to say, well, oh, well, if those users like Coors Light and Greg likes Coors Light, they might also like Sierra Nevada. So we used what's called a, a distance matrix to quantify that relationship. And then using that distance matrix, you can, uh, Jeff, like you said, take certain lists of different beers and compute optimal recommendations uh, based off of that, based off of the distances or the relationships between uh, each one of those beers. Yeah, so I think the crux of this is like you can turn each beer or each object in a recommendation system into a matrix of numbers and then you can plot those numbers in Cartesian space and then you can use cosine similarity or some other similarity formula to uh, gauge you know the how similar um, one vector space is to another why why is cosine similarity so useful uh, to be honest I'm probably not the person to answer that I'm <laughs> I'm I'm a much better engineer than I am a, a data scientist. I that's fine. I've known about a, cosine similarity for like four years and still don't know why you use it over other things. Yeah, and I think that's actually part of the why data science has gotten so much more accessible is that I don't have to know the nuts and bolts of cosine similarity to use it because these third-party libraries, these open-source libraries, have gotten so good. So I can use you know, Manhattan distance, cosine similarity, uh, Euclidean distance, without having to think twice about how to implement them or trying to guess, you know, in theory, which one would be best. I can just try them all out, see which one uh, seems to work best, and just take it from there. Cool. So I, I'd like to be to close off with uh, some kind of rapid-fire questions. What are the What is the biggest engineering problem that Y hat is facing right now? The biggest thing is we've put in a lot of work to making it extremely easy for us to build, uh, build software that can run on premise. And so it's extremely challenging to build software that kind of runs not on your own servers, just because we don't have 
control over it. We're not there to babysit it. And that's something that we've put a lot of work into over the past six to nine months. How do you do hiring at Y Hat? We've found people from really all over. We've had referrals. We've met people on Twitter, through LinkedIn. Um, but the the probably the most important part of our hiring, at least on the technical side, is we'll bring in a candidate for a kind of a hack day where we'll work on them on a, a whatever project. It could be something that they're they've been playing around with. It could be an open source project that they're trying to learn more about and just build something. And we found that that's the best way to get a sense of, well, one, someone's technical ability, but also, and what I think is really important, what it would be like to work with that person. Uh, especially for us, you know, we're only about 10 people and it's really important that we can work well with everyone else on the team and that everyone gets along and, and is able to work together effectively. That's a strikingly different uh, interviewing strategy than the typical boilerplate whiteboard interview. Yeah, I don't like the whiteboard interviews. I've, I've, I have done them in the past, both as a, on both sides, and I've just never found them to be that great of a way to assess how well I'm going to work with someone. Yeah, kind of a it's kind of a tragic uh, legacy icon of software engineering. Yeah, like I mean, I've I to be honest, I don't know how to implement like merge sort or bubble <laughs> sort or any of those. Like I so then you're fired. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's, it's just never struck me as a as like a relevant line of questioning. Very interesting. Well, Greg Lamp, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fantastic talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for, thanks for having me.